this uh, hearing of the Subcommittee on the Western Hemisphere, Transnational Crime, Civilian Security, Democracy, Human Rights, and Global Women's Issues uh, is going to come to order. And the title of this hearing is Attacks on U.S. Diplomats in Cuba, Response and Oversight. We have one government panel testifying today with the following three witnesses who are here, and we're grateful for you joining us here today. On behalf of the executive branch, uh, Mr. Francisco Palmieri, who's the Acting Assistant Secretary of State for the Bureau of Western Hemisphere Affairs, Mr. Todd Brown, Diplomatic Security Assistant Director of International Programs at the Department of State, and Dr. Charles Rosenfarb, who's the Medical Director of the Bureau of Medical Services for the Department of State. Uh, thank you all again for being here on this important topic. There are two goals uh, to the hearing today. The first uh, is to establish the facts and uh, of, of what has occurred, and the second is to conduct oversight over uh, the conduct and the activities of the United States State Department. Here are the facts, as will be testified to today by our panel. In late 2016, staff at the United States Embassy in Havana began complaining of strange noises, and among the descriptions that they uh, complained of, high-pitched beam of sound, incapacitating sound, baffling sensation, akin to driving with windows partially open in a car, or just intense pressure in one ear. At the time of this report, the Post's leadership and the supporting office here in Washington, D.C. viewed this activity as harassment from forces hostile to the United States or to U.S. presence in Cuba. Later, uh, there was information gathered from additional individuals, including some of these, which suggested that the events that led to these complaints actually began as early as November of 2016. The initial events uh, that were reported uh, occurred at diplomatic residences, but later these events occurred at hotels. Individuals first visited the medical unit at the embassy in December 20 of 2016 and January of 2017. Uh, from February through April of 2017, there was an evaluation conducted of 80 members of the embassy community. Sixteen of these were identified with symptoms and medically verifiable clinical findings of some combination similar to what you would see in patients that, quote, have had a mild traumatic brain injury or concussion, unquote. In early July, the Bureau of Medical Services at the State Department convened a panel of academic experts to review case histories and the test results up to that point. And they arrived at a consensus. And the consensus is, and I quote, the patterns of injuries were most likely related to trauma from a non-natural source, end quote. Later, in August of 2017, the Brain Injury Center at the University of Pennsylvania re-evaluated embassy employees that were reporting symptoms. Additional individuals and incidents prior to, 20, to April 2014 were added to the list of confirmed cases. Subsequently, two additional individuals reported exposure in mid-August of last year. And those cases were medically confirmed as well, bringing the total number of cases to 24. All, uh, while the symptoms may vary, all of the medically confirmed cases, all 24 of them, have described some combination of the following symptoms. Sharp ear pain, dull headaches, ringing in one ear, vertigo, uh, visual focusing issues, disorientation, disorientation, nausea, and extreme fatigue. As we said earlier, the timeline of the reported incidents are as follows. The initial wave that were reported in December may have begun as early as November of 2016, and they occurred through late March of 2017. From March of 2017 through late April of 2017, there was a sporadic period 
of, a, of, of reported incidents. Then they stopped, and then two additional uh, reports happened in clo pro close proximity in August of last year. They were medically confirmed in September. These are the facts that will be testified to today by our panel. And with that, I turn to the ranking member. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. And uh, I uh, appreciate that we are starting the new year with a much needed hearing on the brazen attacks on our diplomats in Cuba. And I'd ask that my full statement be included in the record. It's unfortunate that since the news of these bizarre and vicious attacks broke late last summer, we have not seen more public outcry against the Cuban government for whatever scope of ownership it has over these attacks, or more accountability for the health and well-being of our diplomats, some of whom continue to suffer lingering health conditions from these attacks. The Castro regime has proved time and time again it's not a responsible actor in the community of nations. The regime cannot be counted upon to uphold its international commitments or responsibilities. And most certainly, the regime has no regard for individual human rights, security, or dignity. The Cuban government may or may not, at the end of the day, be directly responsible for attacking our diplomats. But as someone who has personally witnessed the modus operandi of the Cuban government, it is unfathomable that the Castro regime and the intelligence services specifically were not aware of these attacks. If senior Cuban officials did not directly order these attacks, they must have been aware of or given tacit approval to foreign agents to operate in Cuba. The scope of the attacks is too specific. So I hope to hear some more sound explanations from our witnesses today. Uh, now, our own diplomats have borne the heavy burden of the simple, unchangeable truth. Uh, and that is that uh, being in a foreign uh, uh, location in terms of your duty uh, runs risks. Uh, and in this particular case, uh, no amount of placating, pandering, or diplomatic overtures is going to change that. The Cuban government has tried to undermine their dangerous and irresponsible behavior by undermining the validity of the claims of our diplomats. Why would a regime that has demonstrated its ability to intimidate, oppress, and harm its own citizens give credence to our concerns about the well-being of Americas? They accuse the United States of fabricating the attacks because we have not released the names or diagnosis of the affected people. Of course, the Castro regime does not fundamentally understand that in a democratic and free country, citizens have a right to privacy and to a government that would prioritize their privacy and health over using them as political tools. And finally, turning to our witnesses, you cannot be held accountable for the behavior uh, of the Cuban government or those who were responsible to, for this, but you are responsible both for the appropriate diplomatic response and the health and safety of our diplomats. And from what I can see, the actions the department has taken on both counts are simply insufficient and unacceptable. Despite much vaunted rhetoric from the president about rolling back ill-conceived um, policy changes, the reality is that the Cuban government continues to enjoy many of the benefits it received. While the administration may champion its new regulations prohibiting transactions that could benefit the Cuban government military intelligence complex, it grandfathered in all contracts that began during the last administration. 
Furthermore, because the administration took so long to actually announce these guidelines, major companies were able to finalize deals in the months between the administration's announcement of these policies and their implementation. At the enforcement level, the Office of Foreign Assets Control remains understaffed with no indication that personnel will be hired. At the State Department, the President has not even nominated an Assistant Secretary for the Western Hemisphere Affairs. Failing to put critical senior staff in place at the appropriate agencies severely undermines the United States' ability to project our interests and to protect our citizens abroad. Accordingly, the administration and the Department's reaction to the Cuban government completely abrogating its obligations under the Vienna Convention to protect our diplomats is laughable. The fact that somehow the Cuban government has managed to paint a narrative that there were no attacks at all is pretty outrageous. Expelling a handful of diplomats to achieve parity with the number of diplomats who had to be removed from Havana for safety is hardly a bold diplomatic move. When new Treasury guidelines were finally announced, the administration stressed they were not in response to the attack on personnel. And then turning to the impacted Foreign Service officers themselves, I appreciate the overview that's been provided, but the truth is, from the accounts we have heard, the Department's response was simply bureaucratic, inadequate, and troubling. I will have a number of questions later, but let me start by saying the stories we heard are shocking. The failure of leadership at the Department and at Post, the sluggish reaction to the initial reports of afflicted personnel, the aloof response of the medical team at the State Department, Silence from diplomatic security to the rest of the department is simply staggering. The members of the U.S. Foreign Service made a commitment to serving their country overseas. They agreed to spend their lives, often taking their families with them, in pursuit of promoting American interests and helping Americans abroad. Some serve in combat zones, large embassies and small, and sometimes on communist islands. According to accounts from those who suffered directly, when diplomats first reported symptoms to the appropriate people at post, they were rebuffed. It is also our understanding that upon finally accepting that the employees were suffering life-altering health consequences, the department took months to arrange for the appropriate care. It was almost a year before the department put the embassy on ordered departure status, and only after reports surfaced in the media. Alarmingly, it's our understanding that the department did not even warn diplomats going to Cuba for permanent or temporary assignments about the risk to their health and the health of their families. As their colleagues were evacuated from Cuba, department leadership failed to inform the rest of the department, including those being sent to serve in the place of those being evacuated. Those who have been suffering physically also have remaining questions about whether they will receive appropriate care for the rest of their careers uh, and their lives. This lack of leadership and responsibility is shocking and unacceptable. I sincerely hope this panel can provide us much needed answers to a myriad of pressing questions. The Cuban government must be held accountable for its failure to uphold international commitments and failure to protect American diplomats. The department must be held accountable for executing the appropriate policies in response and for ensuring the safety, security, and health of the men and women of the Foreign Service. And with that, Mr. Chairman, I look forward to the hearing. Thank you. And uh, we'll begin with our witnesses. Mr. Palmieri, welcome to the committee. Chairman Rubio, Ranking Member Menendez, and distinguished members of the committee, thank you for the opportunity to speak about the attacks against U.S. diplomats in Cuba and the Department of State's efforts in response. At the outset, I want to thank you for your concern for the safety and security 
of our diplomatic personnel in Havana. As you know, this is Secretary Tillerson's top priority. It is mine as well. I'm pleased to be here today with my colleagues from the Bureau of Diplomatic Security and the Bureau of Medical Services, with whom the Bureau of Western Hemisphere Affairs has worked closely on this complex issue. I would also like to emphasize up front that the investigation into these health attacks is ongoing. We have the best experts in the government and the private sector working to help us understand it. At every step in our response to these events, we have worked closely with our medical and technical experts in evaluating health condi conditions and the nature of the attacks. I will walk you through a general timeline which will describe our diplomatic engagement with the Cubans on this issue and review many of the actions we have taken to date. Then I will defer to my colleagues to address the security and medical issues. In late 2016, some members of our diplomatic community serving at U.S. Embassy Havana complained about hearing strange noises and a variety of unexplained physical symptoms. As the department investigated, we began to see signs suggesting that these events, initially in diplomatic residence and later at hotels, may have begun as early as November 2016. As soon as we identified a pattern connecting these unusual events with certain health system symptoms, U.S. officials approached the Cuban government in mid-February to demand it meet its obligations under the Vienna Convention to protect our personnel. The Cubans denied involvement, offered their cooperation, and opened their own investigation. Since then, we have engaged the Cubans more than 20 times, from the working level to the highest level of the Cuban government, both here in Washington and in Havana. In addition to our diplomatic efforts, we prioritize the medical care of our personnel. Dr. Rosenfarb will provide you with additional details. Separately, we launched a government-wide effort to find the cause and culprits behind these attacks. Apart from the investigation, we have met with U.S. interagency partners more than a dozen times to discuss and refine our response to these attacks. The attacks initially appeared to occur in clusters, but starting in late March, sporadic attacks continued until late April and then seemed to stop. Beginning in mid-April, we allowed anyone serving at Embassy Havana who did not feel safe at post to return to the United States. We also expelled two Cuban diplomats in May, in May in order to underscore the Cuban government's responsibility to protect our personnel. After a period without any attacks, there were two additional attacks reported in close proximity in late August, which were medically confirmed in September. Based on the resumption of these attacks, Secretary Tillerson ordered the departure of non-emergency personnel from post on September 29th. The secretary assessed this was the only way to significantly reduce the risk to our diplomats and their families. As a follow-on to the ordered departure decision, we expelled 15 more Cuban diplomats in October to ensure equity and the impact on our respective operations and to underscore to Cuba its obligation to stop the attacks. These decisions, both to draw down our personnel 
and embassy at, at Embassy Havana and to expel Cuban diplomats did not signal a change from President Trump's new policy. Prior to the Secretary's decision to institute ordered departure, our embassy held 17 town hall meetings with American staff. Since the return to, of U.S. diplomats to Washington, we have held a number of meetings with them. Secretary Tillerson personally met with these evacuees to explain his decision to institute ordered departure, and we have organized a number of meetings to address evacuees' concerns. The well-being of the 24 confirmed victims, as well as the well-being of all of our evacuees and those remaining in Havana, continues to be our priority, as does the ongoing investigation. With that, I will turn it to my colleagues to discuss their areas of expertise, and then I will be happy to answer your questions. Thank you, Mr. Palmieri. Mr. Brown. Good morning, <clears throat> Chairman Rubio and other distinguished members of the committee. Thank you for your invitation to appear today to discuss health attacks involving U.S. diplomatic personnel and their families in Havana. Along with my colleagues, I share your concerns regarding the safety and security of our personnel in Cuba and welcome any discussion that may lead to a better understanding of this issue and stronger safeguards for our employees. From a security and investigative standpoint, we continue to work with Embassy Havana to aggressively counter, mitigate, and better understand who and what are causing injuries to our diplomatic staff. Unfortunately, this remains a perplexing case. Our regional security officer at Embassy Havana first became aware of potential health attacks involving embassy personnel in late December 2016. In the early stages of trying to understand what may be occurring, post leadership and supporting offices in Washington believed it was likely a form of harassment by forces hostile to the United States and our presence in Cuba. As more incidents were reported in early 2017 and greater awareness of the seriousness of symptoms became known, our level of concern and mitigation efforts rose exponentially. After senior level meetings with Cuban officials in February outlining Cuba's responsibility to protect diplomats under the Vienna Convention, the regional security officer received confirmation from Cuban counterparts that the Cuban government was conducting its own investigation into this matter. Senior U.S. officials on Embassy Havana's Emergency Action Committee met frequently as part of our ongoing attempt to better understand the nature of the apparent attack and protect staff. Among other things, the embassy deployed recording devices in staff residences in an effort to better identify or capture the possible source behind the threat, as many victims had associated the attack with an acoustic event. After further investigative attempts and expert analysis failed to identify the cause or perpetrator, the Federal Bureau of Investigation opened a case in early May. An FBI team has since visited Havana several times and met with Cuban officials. The FBI's investigation has interviewed victims and conducted surveys of the residences and hotel rooms. However, the investigation remains ongoing and we would refer all specific questions concerning the investigation to the FBI. Thank you. I will be glad to answer any questions you may have. Thank you, Dr. Gold Rosenfarb. 
Uh, good morning. Chairman Rubio, Ranking Member Menendez, and distinguished members of the committee. Thank you for the opportunity to testify on the department's response to the recent health attacks in Havana. I'll be describing the evolution of the medical response and what we currently know about the health effects. From the individual and public health perspective, managing this evolving situation is challenging. Mission personnel describe a multitude of symptoms, many of which are not easily quantifiable and not easily attributable to any specific cause. The sharing of information that occurs in a small, tight-knit community has helped identify more affected personnel, but as typically is the case with any community outbreak, also can complicate an epidemiological evaluation. However, the most challenging factor is the lack of certainty about the causative agent and therefore the precise mechanism of the injuries suffered. Individuals first visited our medical unit in Embassy Havana starting in late December 2016 and January 2017, reporting various symptoms including headache, ear pain, dizziness, and hearing problems. They associated the onset of these symptoms to their exposures with unusual sounds or auditory, auditory sensations. Various descriptions were given, a high-pitched beam of sound, an incapacitating sound, a baffling sensation akin to driving with the windows partially open and in a car, or just an intense pressure in one ear. Since the symptoms first reported primarily affected auditory functions, an otolaryngologist at the University of Miami, highly experienced in evaluating acoustic injuries in military personnel, was identified to perform additional assessments. Between February and April of last year, this specialist evaluated 80 members of the embassy community. Of the individuals evaluated in this initial tranche, 16 were identified to have symptoms and medically verifiable clinical findings of some combination, similar to what might be seen in patients following a mild traumatic brain injury or a concussion. In early July, my office convened a panel of academic experts to review the case histories and the test results gathered to date. Although the assembled group identified that some of the symptoms and findings could be caused by other things such as viral illnesses, previous head trauma, aging, and even stress, the consensus was that the patterns of injuries that had so far been noted were most likely related to trauma from a non-natural source. In light of this emerging clinical parallels to mild traumatic brain injury, I, the nationally recognized Brain Injury Center at the University of Pennsylvania was identified to provide detailed reevaluations of employees with prior exposures and to evaluate embassy community members who reported new exposures. As a result of further evaluations begun in late August, additional individuals with exposures that occurred prior to April 24th were added to the list of confirmed cases. Two other individuals who reported exposures that occurred in mid-August 2017 were also medically confirmed as cases, bringing the total number of cases to 24. I'd now like to describe the health effects identified so far. While the descriptions of the auditory sensations have varied, all medically confirmed cases have described some combination of the following symptoms, beginning within minutes to hours of their exposure of the event. Sharp localized ear pain, dull unilateral headache, tinnitus or ringing in one ear, vertigo, visual focusing issues, disorientation, nausea, and extreme fatigue. In many of the patients, the acute symptoms seem to resolve within days to weeks, but other health issues emerged that were more persistent. These have included cognitive problems, including difficulty with concentration, working memory, and attention, recurrent headache, high-frequency unilateral hearing loss, sleep disturbance, and imbalanced walking. As in the acute phases, the duration and severity of these later symptoms have varied widely. Defining the prognosis for the con confirmed cases is extremely difficult, 
since no precise analog for this possibly novel syndrome exists. Some patients remain symptomatic months after their exposure. The persistent symptoms have improved to varying degrees in all individuals. However, some have after, some after, uh, some after extended rehabilitative therapy, some over time without treatment. 10 of the 24 patients have returned to either full or part-time work, while others continue to receive treatment with an anticipa anticipation of return to duty. However, at this time, we are unable to state whether or not the injuries may result in adverse long-term consequences to the individual's future health or functional abilities. All government personnel who travel to Havana on official duty now receive a detailed medical briefing and are encouraged to undergo pre-deployment screening, including baseline audiograms and neurocognitive testing. We have formally requested assistance from the Centers for Disease Control for performing a broader epidemiologic evaluation and providing appropriate medical information to the American public. Discussions have also been held with the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke at the National Institutes of Health regarding its participation in ongoing medical investigations. I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Uh, Rosenfarb, I'll start with you. Is it fair to say that by May 1st, you said you saw the confirmed cases February through April of 2017, is it fair to say that by May 1st or early May, we were aware that at least 16 U.S. government employees and or dependents had suffered a serious injury while working in Havana for the U.S. government? Uh, Senator, it's fair to say that we were aware that 16 people had suffered some type of injury. Um, as I said, this... But were they, was it serious? Um, in some individuals, the symptoms were, were more serious than others. There was a was, whole spectrum of symptoms that we right. saw and findings as Let well. Let me ask you this. Was there a single, of the 16, at least one U.S. government employee working at Havana suffered serious injury? Is it fair to say at least one suffered serious injury? Um, I would say many suffered serious injury. Um, yeah, let me tell you why I, I anything, uh, because Mr. Palmieri, according to the law, in any case of serious injury related to a U.S. government mission abroad, the Secretary of State shall convene an accountability or review board. The law allows that, that has to happen within 60 days of the occurrence of an incident, and it allows for a 60-day delay if the Secretary determines that additional period is necessary for the convening of the board. So by my calculation, if by early May we knew that at least one, if not several, as Dr. Uh, Rosenfarb has testified, suffered serious injury. By early July, on the 60-day period, and certainly by early September, if you run the whole 120-day period, an accountability review board should have been set up. I got a letter on November 6th saying that there was still not an accountability review board that the secretary had decided to delay for 60 days in order to determine whether one was even necessary. It says, allow additional time for the investigation to yield more information to better inform the decision of whether to convene an ARB. Has an accountability review board been set up as of this date, and why was it not set up as according to law within the 120-day period? Senator, thank you for that question. The secretary has uh, made a decision to convene an accountability review board. Uh, there will be a congressional notification uh, sent shortly. Why was it not done within 120 days of May 1st when we knew that there was serious injury? Um, throughout this process, there's been a lot of information that we knew or at times uh, uh, was then later contradicted. Throughout this process, we've not been able to identify um, who the perpetrator of such attack was and what the means of that attack uh, 
was. It was only until uh, late August when there was another round of attacks that it became apparent uh, to us that uh, we should begin uh, the process of uh, looking at an accountability review board. Well, that's not what the law reads. It says, in any case of serious injury, loss of life, et cetera, et cetera, related to a United States government mission abroad, it does not say that you need to know who did it. In fact, that's one of the reasons for an accountability review board. The bottom line is you, the, the State Department did not follow the law in setting one up um, within the 120-day period, in my opinion, and I believe in the opinion of, of others, given the fact that by early May we knew serious injury had occurred to U.S. personnel and their dependents related to their service and government mission abroad. It wasn't one person, it was several people, as has been testified here. Now, in, in the, we first heard of the complaints in late 2016, and Mr. Brown, you testified the conclusion was that this was forces hostile to the United States and or hostile to our presence in Cuba. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, initially, uh, we felt that it was a form of harassment, and that was attributed to, to the government. Mr. Yes. Palmieri, do you know when Secretary Kerry was made aware? This was the State Department conclusion yes. that there was harassment, correct? Yes, sir. That was the early opinion of, of the security professionals who looked at it, that it was likely a form of harassment. Okay. When was Secretary Kerry made aware? Do you know? I, I do not know. I'll have to check the record, Senator. Do you know if President Obama was ever made aware? I know that uh, as a regular matter, we would have apprised the National Security Coun uh, Council at some point after the late December uh, information became apparent. What about Secretary Tillerson? When, when, he, when was he first made aware? Um, uh, I would believe that would have been in late February, sir. Okay. Uh, do you know if the Trump transition team was made aware during the transition period? Uh, I did not uh, have a contact with them on this issue. I'm not aware if anyone else did, sir. Now, in December 2014, when President Obama changed policy towards Cuba, we set up the embassy. We had to expand personnel, did we not, in Havana? We added personnel to expand the mission. Uh, I, I would have to go back to check the uh, record, but yes, that probably makes sense. And we also had to secure housing. And we provided, so we had to secure housing for the additional mission in Havana. That would be normal practice, yes, Senator. And in Cuba, we would have to provide the Cuban government the list of all of the U.S. government employees that were moving to Havana to work at the mission. That's just a matter, matter of course, correct? But we would have solicited visas for the additional personnel, yes. And the residences in Cuba, since there is no real private property, all of these residents would have been owned by the Cuban government. Uh, that's my understanding, too, sir. The hotels where these attacks happened were owned by the Cuban government. That's for sure. That's correct. Okay. What, uh, what security measures did we take, Mr. Brown, in this expansion on these residences? Uh, Senator, I mean, to talk a little bit about residential security, I think historically, from a crime perspective, political violence perspective, there were, there were not... Uh, features sort of related to that. Our, our concern, and I believe the Cuban government uh, selected, was, in, was aware of which housing our personnel would go into. Um, our, our housing profile is, is fairly compact. Uh, there are not specific um, security measures in a, in a high CI, in a counterintelligence type environment. So there wouldn't have been any other um, physical security uh, in relation to the residences that were in place, other than the location 
and certainly based on a history in Cuba, we did not have, beyond the, the harassment element, we did not have you know, a high crime, uh, a high crime uh, statistics or any, anything related to political violence. So there wouldn't have been any residential measures taken above and beyond what was already in place. Okay, my final question is for you, Mr. Brown, and you, Dr. Rosenfarb. Based on what we know, and more importantly, what we don't know, can you today guarantee the safety of any personnel in Havana currently stationed there or about to be deployed to Havana? Do we know what they can do to pr protect themselves from these sorts of injuries? Uh, can we guarantee that today, if we send someone there, they are safe from these injuries? Senator, I don't think we can say categorically that, that we can guarantee uh, that they would be safe from this. Uh, certainly, we've... We, not knowing what's causing it or who's behind it or how it's being done uh, gives us very little in the terms of mitigation. What we have done is address sort of uh, being sure that our community in, in Havana is well aware of what has happened uh, to provide advice on how to respond to that, to have teams in place that then can respond and how to report those types of incidents. So we have done a lot of work in terms of elevating the knowledge of the personnel that but are But I guess there. to cut to the chase, Mr. Brown, if I were being deployed to Havana today to work in the embassy and I asked you, what can I do to protect myself from the sort of thing that have happened, you do not know what I can do to protect myself since we don't know what it is they use to attack them. Uh, that's true, Senator. Our, our, our guidance would be in the event of something similar that what has taken place, to react in a certain manner. That's a reactive measure, not a mitigation Dr. Measure. Rosenfarb, do you have any advice for people that are being deployed to Havana, how they can protect themselves from this? It's, well, we try and educate those who have to go down there for government business and make sure they're aware of the risk and make sure, make sure they're aware of what we know about um, the symptoms that have occurred. Um, as far as we know right now, the only mitigation factor is to limit, limit, limit your exposure um, we inform people that should they hear or feel a sensation to move away as quickly as possible. Um, we know from our patients already who have been there that the, limp, the less exposure, the better. Um, we also do pre-deployment pre screening now to ask, ascertain baseline hearing, baseline cognitive function. Um, so should they report any concern whatsoever, we're able to measure what they're currently at compared to their previous status and get them the help they need. The ranking member. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Chairman, unfortunately, I'm going to have to go to the White House for an immigration meeting, so I'm going to have a series of questions for the record. I do have some questions here now, but uh, I was looking forward to a second round, so uh, I hope those questions will be answered. First, uh, listening to this last set of answers, like uh, the times in which we used to have children put their head underneath their desk during an air raid drill for a nuclear attack. Ridiculous. Move away from a sound that you're hearing. Uh, it's, it's pretty amazing to me. Um, let me uh, ask, the Democratic offices of this committee have requested a classified briefing on this issue in early December. To date, that briefing has not taken place. Do you commit to providing a classified briefing for this committee? Absolutely, Senator. And given the nature of the hearing and the fact that so much is tied to classified information, do you commit to accepting and responding to classified questions for the record? Yes, sir. All right. Now, uh, Mr. Palmieri, would it not be fair to say that in Cuba, uh, either it is the regime who conducted these attacks or they have full knowledge of who conducted these attacks because the state security apparatus in Cuba is one that has every element of Cuban society and life fully monitored and engaged. Very difficult to believe 
that if a third country uh, ultimately engaged in these attacks within Cuba, that the Cuban intelligence would not know. Is that a fair statement? Yes, sir. All right. So uh, either it is the Cubans or it is someone else. Now, under the possibility that it is someone else, um, and I think the administration has recognized that one possible explanation for these attacks on U.S. personnel is a third country, possibly in collaboration with the Cuban government, or at least with its knowledge, or if it wasn't with its knowledge, they know who it is, uh, and they have not come forth, as I understand. Is that a fair statement? Have the Cuban government suggested who this might be if it's not them? No, not that I'm aware of. So, uh, in the theory for a moment that it is a third country, uh, in December of 2016, around the same time these attacks first started, the Cuban and Russian government signed a new defense cooperation agreement, including cooperation on a series of new technologies. And I'd like to introduce two press articles regarding this agreement for the record, Mr. Chairman. Has the State Department raised uh, attacks against U.S. personnel in Cuba with the Russian government, for example? Uh, sir, I think I would, that's a very good question. I think it would be better to address that issue in a classified setting. Okay, so if I were to go to a list of other countries, you're going to give me the same answer. In general, uh, no, yes, sir. Yes, you're going to give me the same answer. All right, so I'll look forward to that classified moment. Now, let me ask you, let, let me ask you this. Uh, you have said that you will not return individuals uh, if, in fact, uh, individuals to the post if, uh, unless the Cubans can guarantee that these attacks will not continue. Doesn't that indicate you believe that the, the government has at least some knowledge or control over these attacks? Uh, the president and the secretary have stated that they do believe the Cuban government has responsibility in this situation. Uh, Dr. Rosenfarb, when was the first time a diplomat reported symptoms of an attack? Um, the first symptoms were seen, uh, first patients were seen by our health provider in the medical unit in Embassy Havana in, um, in mid-January. Mid-January of? 2017. Of 2017. Uh, do we know when the Chargé was first informed of these attacks? Uh, I believe this Chargé alerted these attacks at the, uh, um, at the very end of December of uh, 2016. So we say that some of these uh, attacks took place in May of 2016, right? Um. There was a cluster of attacks that occurred between March uh, and mid-April. I do not believe uh, there was an attack in May. I'd have to go back to the time. Okay, so if it's March or mid-April of 2016, and you... Excuse me, sir. I meant 2017. 2017. Okay. So let me ask you this. What... Uh, was the Chargé informed of the severity of attacks? Was he advised that the effects of the attack could be permanent? He was informed of the, the attacks in late, uh, in late December, sir, of 2016. At that point, I do not believe we knew uh, or we had uh, information about the severity or uh, the depth of the attacks. When diplomats reported symptoms to the regional security officer and medical team, why did it take so long to respond? Uh, 
Senator, I believe to try to clarify how sort of how this sort of timeline from an investigative standpoint took place, uh, it was December 30th in 2016 when it was first brought to the attention of the regional security officer and the front office of, of the embassy. Um, at that time, it, it was not clear, you know, what was taking place, nor were there related severe medical symptoms with, they just simply didn't know. And at that point, that's when they thought it might be some form of, of harassment. And the regional security officer did note it in a report back to Washington, along with, with other reports it was in. So that's when they first sort of had this notice of what was, what was happening. And then there was this long gap that nothing new happened. So this, you know, this, this case is, is sort of amplified by how perplexing and, and knowledge gaps, but, but they did seize on this, this early indicator that something odd had happened. And then I believe it was uh, um, late, you know, this was considered a form of harassment early on, and then it wasn't until um, early February when new incidents were reported that there was sort of this, this moment of, we've got something bigger happening here. Why were diplomats uh, who were affected told not to share their symptoms or concerns with family members? Uh, I'm not aware that that was ever done, sir. Would, would you review it? Because I think if you talk to these individuals, they'll tell you that they were told not to share their symptoms or concerns with family members. Uh, let me ask you this. When did you first learn that employees were suffering symptoms associated with traumatic brain injury? We, evac we medically evacuated our one, the first patient, I think it was February 6, 2017. And like I said, it testified over the next two months, we evacuated um, 40 more people, but we also had the specialist from Miami go to um, Havana and assess more people. Um, as we saw the more and more patients and the specialist was able to do the evaluations and do the objective assessments, um, it became, the pattern of injuries became consistent with what I just testified as being most likely a, a, a version of traumatic brain injury or concussion. Let, so let it, was, it was a, an accumulation of information and findings over, over that two months. Mr. Palmieri, for those employees who were or are currently being treated, will the department continue to cover all their medical care? I would refer that question to the Office of Medical okay, Services. Okay, Dr. Rosenfarb can answer it. Um, we're committed to do everything we can under existing authorities to provide the care and the um, and support our employees Those need. existing authorities suggest that uh, there is some limitation to the treatment you will give these employees? Um, the, we are, there may be some limitations to family members um, over the course of, because typically what would happen, people who are injured, work employees who are injured in the course of duty would be uh, covered by the workers' compensation law. Um, family members would not be. Well, I, I would uh, ask you in response uh, to my questions to give uh, the committee a, a full sense of what limitations there are. I don't think that when we send a diplomat abroad uh, who is attacked by whomever uh, at the end of the day that their health and well-being should be limited in terms of our response to them. I think you want to send a global message to all of our men and women abroad that if they are attacked, they will be taken care of, just as we would to any of our veterans. And I consider them in this respect a veteran of our diplomatic efforts, which are equally as important. So I'd like to see what limitations there are, if any, and then work with the chairman and others to see if we can respond to that. I have plenty of other questions, but I look forward to your answers uh, in writing. Thank you. Senator Johnson. 
Hey, Mr. Chairman, I'm not sure who to direct this to, but let me first say I, I do agree with the Mr. Brown there. This is a pretty perplexing case. Uh, does anybody know how many different locations uh, this has been perpetrated at? Senator, I, I don't have the exact number of locations, but it was, it was several residences. It was no official facilities, and there were two hotels, I believe. Okay. Are you aware uh, of these type of symptoms with any other Cuban nationals or people that were not associated with the United States uh, Diplomatic Corps? Any reports of something similar to others? Uh, subsequent to the uh, issuance of our travel warning, uh, on or about October 1 of, uh, this, of 2017, there have been 18 American citizen reports to the uh, Department's Bureau of Consular Affairs. That information has been shared uh, with the investigators. Of, of those, of, of all the reports, how, what percentage approximately is there in audible uh, type of an attack? as opposed to just starting to feel ill or dizzy or experiencing vertigo? I mean, is, is there always associated with it some kind of high-pitched sound or something? Senator, you're referring to the, the attacks against the diplomats. We don't have information about the attacks okay, so, on the individuals. Okay, so with the diplomats, I mean, how, how, many, how often is that? Is it 100% of the time there, there's, they hear something or...? Uh, the vast majority of the 24 cases reported hearing or feeling some auditory sensation. When you say feel auditory sensation, something you, you're just feeling a flutter in your ear or something, you know, like say the, ca the cavitation you hear or cavitation when you hear with the window lowered in your car, that type of thing? Right. So the descriptions of the sensations have varied quite a bit. Um, some feel more like a vibration. Some report a loud sound. They, those descriptions have varied, though. Have we ever set up any kind of monitoring device in either, any of those residences? Yes, sir. We have provided off-the-shelf uh, recording devices that are, that are geared to record high-frequency sounds. Uh, we have successfully recorded some sounds and turned those over to investigators. Okay, that's interesting. Did, when you recorded those sounds, did people exhibit the symptoms? Uh, I believe that some of those at least were associated with, with individuals who, who later showed symptoms. But I defer to the doctor also to comment on that. Dr. Rosenfarber, are you aware of any type of technology that would cause this? No, I'm not. I mean, not. again, not, not that you know exactly what causes this, but are you aware of some kind of auditory type of uh, weapon that could uh, cause this type of uh, damage? No, I'm not, sir. Mr. Palmieri, do you know the United States government is aware of any? Uh, no, I do not, sir. Uh, Dr. Rosenfarb, uh, I take the uh, Senator Rubio's uh, description of the ARB and what's required by law, but as a medical doctor, it, it seems like you hopped on this pretty quick. And we had experts come in February 2017, literally within a month, month and a half of when uh, embassy personnel were even made aware of this. Uh, short of a full-scale ARB, from a medical standpoint, is there anything else, any regrets you have in terms of things you didn't do? Um, no, no regrets, sir. Um, I, I think it's important to remember that when I said serious 
injuries, um, at the time the injuries were serious, as any acute injury would be, um, one thing that hasn't become clear and still uncertain is what, what if any, their long-term consequences would be. Um, someone can suffer a serious injury but may improve completely. And at that point, um, you know, they're, they're able to go on and, and, and don't have any health consequences. Each step of the way, we, um, we identified uh, where we had information gaps. We sought to fill those gaps. We got the best care we could find for our personnel. And we've made decisions based on the information we had at each point of the investigation. So, I mean, you can, you can suffer an injury from an illness, but at what point do you believe an injury was caused by some type of attack? Or are you still not certain of that? Um, after our discussion with the panel of academic experts in July, when the panel reviewed other possible explanations, each explanation seemed to have holes in it. Um, and the panel felt that the one explanation that could probably best explain, or was most likely to explain it, was that there was some non-natural incident that had caused the, the injuries. Yeah, that, that, was, that was in July of 2017. Yes. Well, my final question, how many uh, embassy personnel have requested uh, relocation? Or was that just a decision made by the State Department to move people? Or the Medical Corps? Um, there were eight individuals who requested a departure from Havana before the Secretary's decision uh, that moved the post to an ordered departure status where we re removed all but emergency personnel. So were those re requests granted? Yeah, anyone who wanted to depart post was allowed to depart post. Okay. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you all for testifying today. Um, I think this committee had a classified briefing on this issue in October. Mr. Palmieri, you suggested that there was information that you could only share in a classified briefing. Is there new information that's come to light since that classified briefing about what's occurred in these instances? I think it would benefit the committee for us to come up and do an additional um, uh, classified briefing. There has been there have been developments since the October briefing. I know we've tried to keep the committee informed to the best of our ability, uh, and there has been uh, uh, it, it would be worthwhile. Yes, Senator. Um, there's an AP headline, a story from yesterday, which you all may have seen, which says that the FBI doubts a sonic attack. And I would just read um, briefly the FBI report, which hasn't been released publicly, is the clearest sign to date of the U.S. ruling out the sonic weapon theory. The report says the FBI tested the hypothesis that air pressure waves via audible sound, infrasound, or ultrasound could be used to clandestinely hurt Americans in Cuba and found no evidence. Is, do you believe that this report is accurate that was in the AP story? Senator, perhaps I comment just that it's an FBI report and I would hesitate to comment on the, on the FBI findings at this point. Um, Mr. Chairman, did we ask the FBI if they would come and testify before this committee about this issue? We did not. The FBI generally will not testify right. because of jurisdictional issues with, just, with the judiciary. Um, is there a way for us to get the information from this FBI report in a classified briefing? There is, and I think that's one of the things Senator Menendez was asking about. 
um, I think that would be very helpful. Mr. Brown, how has the Cuban government responded to these attacks, and have they been cooperative in the investigations? Senator, I'm not, a, I'm not aware that they've been uncooperative. I know that we've had uh, our own investigative team that went down in, in May, and, and they had no difficulties in at least entering the country and, and certainly working the case in terms of just the, the U.S. mission. Uh, I'm also unaware that the FBI has encountered any difficulties in terms of coming in and out of the country for investigative purposes. Beyond that, I, I do know that the, the Cuban government said they would also conduct a, a parallel investigation, so to speak. I understand that the embassy has noted in, increased security, Cuban security presence in our, in our residential areas purportedly in response to this issue, but I, I'm, I, I honestly don't know if, if that has, is any legitimate attempt on their part to uncover, but it has been noted that, that there are increased uh, security uh, presence by the Cubans in those residential areas. Mr. Palmieri, knowing what you know about the way the Cuban government operates, do you believe that there could have been deliberate attacks on our personnel without the Cuban government knowing about it? Uh, I find it very difficult to believe that. Cuba is a uh, security state. The Cuban government uh, uh, in general uh, has a very tight lid on anything and everything that happens in that country. And have they been more responsive because we asked them to remove their embassy personnel? Um, has that produced any change in their behavior? The Cuban government, since we expelled their personnel in October, has engaged in a pattern of trying to discredit uh, the theories related to these attacks, I do not think that is a helpful posture for it to take. Have they actually investigated the attacks themselves? Mr. Brown? According to the Cuban authorities, they said that they were opening a parallel investigation, but beyond that, I'm, I'm unaware of, of what they've done or what they've uncovered. Uh, perhaps that could be a question uh, posed to FBI investigators. So we have not... The State Department has not seen the results of any report that they have done. Not that I'm aware of, no. Um, given... Senator, Senator, if I could clarify yeah. that last point. Uh, uh, we uh, did have a um, law enforcement dialogue in September where they did share uh, with the department a um, um, document that they purported to be uh, the results of uh, their preliminary investigation uh, into this matter. And did it shed any light on or provide any information that we didn't already have? I have not seen the report, Senator, but I'm not aware that any new information surfaced due to a Cuban investigation. Um, my time is up, but if I could just ask one more question, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Palmieri, as someone who um, has watched um, Cuba for some time, given the, the change in American policy during the Obama administration to resume um, a diplomatic relationship with Cuba and to begin to 
resume other commercial and other ties with the country. Is there any reason to think it would be in Cuba's interest to make deliberate attacks against our embassy personnel at a time when there was an effort to resume ties with the country? I'm loath to speculate on Cuban government intentions. However, there is a long <laughs> history and pattern of uh, Cuban harassment of U.S. diplomats stationed uh, in Havana. Uh, uh, it's entirely uh, uh, possible uh, that they could have escalated that uh, pattern of harassment and caused these incidents. In whatever case, they are responsible for the safety and security of U.S. diplomats stationed in Havana under the Vienna Convention, right. and they have failed to live up to that responsibility. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Udall. Thank you uh, very much, Mr. Chairman. And um, I, I uh, obviously care like you do very much, and I think all of us here, about our personnel overseas and if they get harmed and, and uh, making sure that they get um, adequate medical personnel. And, and doctor, you seem to suggest that they get, they get uh, the care and that some of the care they, they, you were drawing lines, some may be workman's comp, others may be that they weren't serving in, in, in the line of duty, uh, something along that line. Of the 24 cases, which of those um, would you say are workman's comp? Were they off-duty? Were all of them off-duty or some of them uh, on-duty situations in the hotel and at the, the two hotels and at the residence? Um, all 24 are getting the best care available. And, uh, you, and you plan to keep that care, the best care available, like you're talking about. Right. Um, as individuals, they have the option to, to seek any care they want. Um, in terms of the workers' comp issue, that, in terms of, that de determines how that care is paid for. Um, any U.S. government employee working in an embassy, we consider this an, an occupational exposure. Therefore, um, we are encouraging our personnel who are employees to make a claim with the Department of Labor for workers' compensation. The issue on the compensation is maybe one for any eligible family member who might be affected. Um, because they're not the employee. Yeah, but uh, but are you aware of any of these uh, 24 individuals or additional individuals who are now paying for uh, their medical care because the government will no longer provide it? Right. So no one is actually paying for their medical care right now directly. Um, we have authorities to to medically evacuate personnel um, and to be. We, we seek reimbursement from the medical insurer, the primary medical insurer in first, but we've committed to providing what we call secondary payer benefits to personnel who were affected overseas. Um, we have authority to do that for up to a year and potentially longer, again, primarily for, for employees, but we also have benefit be able to do that for a period of time for, for family members as well. Yeah. So there are no out-of-pocket expenses um, that are incurred by any of the employees or family members right now. Okay. Now, Senator Shaheen read the, the recent AP story where the FBI concluded uh, that this wasn't a sonic attack and basically ruled that out. As you know, the FBI took a number of trips to Cuba. They interviewed down there. They were very, very thorough in terms of what they did. And so them coming out with this report uh, 
which you uh, can't comment on, would you tell us what your, your um, uh, theories are of what happened? They've ruled that out. What are your theories of what you think happened? Well, there's been, uh, you know, when this thing <clears throat> has been looked at from an investigative standpoint, I, I, I don't think that solely the acoustic element has been looked at, you know, that from the very beginning, even going back into to late February when we sort of had that moment of, of a medical element associated with this, that it was shared within the interagency community of what possibly could be, you know, happening in, in Havana. And though these events were associated with an acoustic element, they were still looking at other possibilities. And, and so I'm not familiar with the FBI. I know, I know this report was, was not um, put out publicly. Uh, if, if, but if what are your what are your they've they've ruled that out. Have you ruled it out, or you still have it? Well, open? I, I don't know that I would I would rule it out entirely. Uh, uh, the acoustic element could be used as a masking el you know piece of. So, on uh, what basis then are you claiming that it's acoustic? I, I'm not claiming that it's acoustic. I just know that there's been acoustic element associated with the sensations and the feelings. Whether if the FBI has, has determined that that is not the case, which I have not seen this report, and I don't think it's been released publicly, um, that doesn't mean that, that acoustic element couldn't be part of another type of you know, style of attack here. And I, and I do know that other, other types of, uh, of attacks are being considered in connection with this. And, and what, what are those? I think there's there's viral there's there's ultrasound you know there's there's there, there there's a range of, of of things that that the ex the technical experts are looking at as could this be a possibility. So you when you say viral you're talking about somebody intentionally implanting a virus. Um, that is would not be ruled out that could be a possibility. And then but other ultrasound you're saying? You know, I've seen the sort of the range of what possibly could be taking place beyond sort of the acoustic element, and those are some of the things that have been mentioned to be looked at. And, and in some cases, they've been ruled out from experts saying they don't know how that could be done in, in, that, uh, you know, in that fashion. So, yeah. I, I um, see my time's out, Mr. Chairman. I'm ha I'm ha I'd like a second round, but I don't Go know. Okay. No, that's... Okay, <laughs> we're all alone. Well, we well, just be, us and whoever's we, watching. We may be rejoined. We may be rejoined. But um, let me um, also uh, say that uh, you know I supported President Obama's efforts to re-engage with Cuba. I believe that President Trump's decision to walk back some of those efforts is a major mistake uh, that only harms the Cuban people and isolates the United States and the region. Cuba has been looking to reopen and grow ties with the U.S. and U.S. businesses, including those in New Mexico, Arizona, Florida, and Mississippi, and with many U.S. citizens who want to travel there. And in my trips to Cuba, I've taken a number of trips. The last one uh, was with uh, several uh, uh, members uh, uh, Senator uh, Leahy, Senator Cochran said this was in February 2017, so it was a after this was already unfolding down there. Uh, was there with Senator Leahy, Senator Cochran, Senator Bennett, Representative McGovern. Uh, we had a, uh, 
a very good visit and visited with, with a number of uh, officials and stayed in, in uh, hotels down there. And, and, as, and we, as far as I can tell from any of the members that went along, nothing of this sort happened to us. But uh, um, I, I, I wonder why, you know, uh, with Cuba, and there seems to be a huge interest on them wanting to open up and wanting to have uh, the, the engagement with our business community and, and all of these things. What, what would be their motive when the Cuban government was looking to increase ties with the U.S.? What, Mr. Palmieri or Mr. Brown? Again, I, I can't speculate on what motive the Cubans would have. It, it's just, um, it has happened in Havana, in their country, a country which they generally exercise total uh, uh, security control over. It's incomprehensible to us that they are not aware of how and who is responsible and that they cannot take steps uh, to prevent these kind of attacks from uh, ever happening again. Well, they, they have um, said on a number of occasions on our trip down there, the foreign minister has traveled here, that they uh, did not condone the attacks in any way. They weren't a part of them. They had no knowledge of them. Uh, they've been very forthright, I think, in that respect. Uh, the safety of our diplomats uh, is paramount, and, and I found it interesting that many U.S. diplomats disagreed with the departure orders, as did their employee association. The American uh, Foreign Service Association, or the AFSA, whose president, Barbara Stevenson, said at the time, uh, AFSA's view, and this is a quote from her, is that America's diplomats need to remain on the field and in the game. We have a mission to do, and it's an important mission. And what happened here, what the United States did was very different than what was done uh, by the Canadians. Canadian diplomats in Havana also reported uh, mysterious ailments, yet Canada has not reduced its diplomatic presence in Havana or expelled Cuban diplomats from Ottawa. Uh, why has the U.S. response been so different that, than from the Canadian response? Secretary Tillerson, from his first day at the department, has um, uh, said that the safety, well-being, and health uh, and security of uh, U.S. diplomats overseas are his top priority. It is mine as well. Uh, this decision uh, uh, to go to ordered departure reflects... Uh, his belief and his concern and our concern that uh, uh, we had to take this step to protect our people and, and that the Cuban government had to do more to uh, assure us that these attacks would stop. Has any other country in the world done what we've done and withdrawn uh, all of their diplomats except a small emergency force? In Havana? Not that yes, I'm aware yes, of, sir. Not that I'm aware of, sir. And, and are you aware that, that uh, any Canadian uh, diplomats, and it, 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 since all of this has unfolded, have they uh, 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 had additional ailments or additional problems? 
Sir, the Canadians have withdrawn some of their personnel, but uh, uh, I think we could go into greater detail in the classified briefing on that, uh, on that element. Thank you. We look forward to that. The Trump administration has reversed a variety of steps to improve ties uh, made by the previous administration. What benefits have we achieved from these actions? How uh, has this impacted American businesses as well as uh, uh, priestess in, in Cuba? I'm sorry, I missed the first part of that question. I said the Trump administration has reversed a variety of steps to improve ties made by the previous administration, referring to the Obama administration trying to improve ties, trying to open up and engage, trying to help the Cuban people. And, and we've seen a big growth in the, uh, the small business community there in Cuba. And I'm just wondering now that this administration has reversed all of that, uh, what benefits have we achieved from these actions? Are you aware that the uh, Cuban people are doing better? How has this impacted American businesses as well as the Cuentra uh, uh, Priestess in, in New Mexico, in, in, uh, excuse me, in Cuba? The President Trump's new national security presidential memorandum on Cuba lays out a new policy, you are correct, Senator, that is designed to not just help the private sector in Cuba, but to ensure that the Cuban government lives up to its international commitments on human rights, to allow us to promote greater freedom on behalf of the Cuban people, uh, and to ensure that we are enforcing U.S. law with respect to the embargo and the statutory ban on tourism to Cuba. The measures we have taken are designed uh, to ensure that any engagement and assistance, uh, private sector assistance in Cuba benefits the Cuban people and not the regime. Thank you very much. And I, I hope that, that um, uh, what will occur here is that you will continue to share with us how uh, this progresses. I mean, this is a very perplexing uh, situation and, and I think we should continue our investigations here in the Congress, both at the, at the in private security uh, briefings and, and those kinds of situations. But I, I think we should uh, be careful not to jump to conclusions until we really know uh, what happened. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Really appreciate you calling this hearing. Thank you. And uh, any other members appear, I'll just kind of try to wrap up the loose ends. And, and I'll take off with right with Senator Udall said there at the end, and that is jumping to conclusions. That's why I thought the important part of this hearing is to kind of lay out the facts, okay? I read this headline a couple days ago. It said FBI rules out sonic attacks and saw some other things out there about it. And so you read that and you could conclude that nothing happened. And in essence, you know, I saw at one point the Cuban government said that it could be crickets or some insect noise, cicadas, is that what they're, yeah. I don't even know there were cicadas. Well, I don't know, we don't have that uh, problem in Miami, but. Uh, you have them? Yeah. A lot of concussive effects after? No? All right, well, yeah. <laughs> but my, my point is that um, you could read that headline and conclude that that means that nothing happened. That, that's the method by which the attack, there, there has not been a definitive, we cannot definitively sit here today and say, this is the machine or this is the thing they used to cause these injuries, okay? And, and no one here has claimed that we know that. What I think is not in dispute 
is that there are 24 Americans who either work for the U.S. government or were there with a, as a dependent of a U.S. government employee who during their time in Havana have experienced symptoms that are consistent with what you would see in mild traumatic brain injury and or concussion. That is an established fact that we've talked about today. We may not know how they came to that point, but we know it happened to them and we know it happened to 24 people while they were in working in Havana. Uh, Dr. Rosenfarb, let me ask you, is there any thought given to the fact that this is a case of mass hysteria, that a bunch of people are just being hypochondriacs and making it up? Well, as you said, Senator, 24 people have had symptoms and findings consistent with what looks like a, a mild traumatic brain injury. Um, the objective tests that were done were not ones that could basically easily faked. Um, there are exact findings that our experts have, have determined. Um, that being said, you know, no, no etiology, no cause has been fully ruled out, and we're, we're looking, their doctors are looking at everything, but, but the findings suggest that um, this is not an ep episode of mass hysteria. And so what we know for a fact is that 24 Americans that were in Havana on either related to or on government business for a significant period of time, for a period of time, have come back with these symptoms. That is a fact. There's no, so when people are out there reporting about sonic attack ruled out, perhaps the sonic part of it has been ruled out, but the fact that people, to the, if that's even true, by the way, I'm not saying, that's just what the headline said, but the fact that this has happened, that people have been hurt, that is established fact. Does anyone on the panel dispute that, that people have been hurt while working in Havana on behalf of the U.S. government. Okay, so then the second question becomes, what's our role here in oversight? And I know we're starting to play some word games here, but I, I think this is really important because this is an oversight committee, okay? And our job is to conduct oversight over the Department of State. Here's what we know. I know what the law says. The law says in the case of any serious injury related to a U.S. government mission abroad, the Secretary of State shall convene an accountability board. It doesn't say in case of any permanent injury. It says in the case of any serious injury. And I know, given all the attention being paid to concussions, as an example, because of football and other things, that concussions are considered serious injury. And I would say that to anyone in the world, if I told you I'm going to cause you to have mild traumatic brain injury, you would think that's serious, um, whether it be, it's permanent or not. That's what the law says. We know that these complaints came in by late 2016, that... Uh, that uh, we were by uh, that, that there were visits to the medical unit in late December of 16 and throughout 17. We know that they were serious enough that by mid-February we approached the Cuban government about it. We know that in the early stages after this occurred, it was the opinion of both the leadership at the Post in Havana and in the supporting office in Washington that this was likely some form of harassment by forces hostile to the United States or our presence in Cuba. That was the assessment made at that time. We know that in late April, and by, or certainly by early May, we had 16 people that we could identify with symptoms and medically verifiable clinical findings similar to, as I said earlier, mild traumatic brain injury or concussion. Um, we know that by September 29th, we ordered the departure of non-emergency personnel. All these things happened, and yet we know that by October, certainly by November 6th of this year, an ARB was still not up and running. So if you just do the math on the calendar, these facts that I just laid out, extrapolated backwards, should have led to the appointment. And I understand there was a transition, and I understand there was a change in administration, but we should have had an accountability review board in place, or 
some notification given as to why it's no longer necessary. Of course, since then, the decision's been made. And where are we, by the way, Mr. Palmieri, in the accountability review period? Are we now in the active? Has it now, when, when was it stood up? When was the accountability review board activated? Uh, the secretary took a decision to uh, form an accountability review board on December 11th. Uh, I believe a congressional notification uh, will arrive shortly and that is required before the board is actually constituted, Senator. So on December 11th, so we, okay, well, I can tell you that's more than 120 days from all these facts, which I think lead to the argument that we should have had. Now, because we don't know how these attacks were conducted, suffice it to say, uh, let, me, let me ask this, uh, Dr. Rosenfarb and, and Mr. Brown, and this would never happen, but if someone in the U.S. government says, we want to cause these symptoms in people, um, that technology doesn't exist. We don't know of that technology. Is that accurate? We are not aware of a technology that does this. We've never seen a technology anywhere in the world that does this to people. That's my understanding, Senator, when going to the uh, subject matter experts in both in government and outside government, we have not seen this. Dr. Rosenfarb, have you ever seen cases of this outside of an actual blow to the head or something similar? I have not. Okay, and that's consistent with everything we've been told. Is that, and the reason why I raise that is because obviously this is a pretty sophisticated thing. Okay, this was not something conducted by you know, a fly-by-night operation. Whatever happened to these people happened as a result of some sophisticated technology that, quite frankly, is so sophisticated, we, we don't understand it. So you, it leads you then, so you have a sophisticated attack of some sort causing these injuries. We don't know who possesses that sophisticated uh, material, but we know that it's pretty sophisticated, leading you to believe it's a nation state, someone who can afford this kind of thing. And then it leads you down the road of motivation. And I think it's fair to say, and I think most members of this committee would argue as well, and I think many of you would probably share this view, that whoever did this, did this because they wanted there to be friction between the United States and the Cuban government. That would be the motivation behind this. Someone who wanted to cause friction between the U.S. and the Cuban government, uh, particularly if you look at the timing of these attacks, November, December 2016, after the election. Um, so it, start, it makes you start to think, who, who would do this? Someone who doesn't like our presence there and someone who wants there to be this sort of friction between the U.S. So who would be motivated to create friction or who would not be in favor of an increased U.S. presence in Cuba? Well, the first, obviously, is opponents of U.S.-Cuba uh, opening under the Obama administration. I don't think any credible person on the planet believes that some group of anti-Castro Cubans conducted these attacks in an elaborate scheme to somehow disrupt uh, the Obama opening. So I don't even want to spend any time on that. Unless anyone here thinks that that's a viable option, I assure you it, it is not. The second is a, a rogue element within the Cuban government itself. And it's interesting, I was reading this Associated Press report, and, uh, and it talks about the initial reaction. Now, maybe this isn't accurate, but on September 15th, the Associated Press reported that uh, in a rare face-to-face -face conversation, Castro told U.S. diplomat Jerry De Laurentiis that he was baffled and he was concerned, and he denied any responsibility, but U.S. officials were caught off guard by the way he addressed the matter, devoid of the indignant, how dare you accuse us attitude the U.S. had come to expect from Cuba's leaders. Uh, it would also say his government didn't dispute that something troubling may have gone down on Cuban soil. Now, subsequently, that's not the position they've taken, but this is what the article reports. 
This suggests to me that potentially uh, Castro is aware of rogue elements within his own government that may have been behind this because whether you want to call them hardliners or people that feel they just don't, they, they feel like they'd be in a stronger position if this opening had not occurred or this uh, increased U.S. presence, perhaps people concerned about an increased U.S. presence in light of the planned transition that theoretically is supposed to take place at some point this year. So I'm not asking you for anything classified um, because I don't think such a thing would be classified. But, but Mr. Palmieri, at any point in time, have we ever seen reports from any of our diplomats in Cuba that suggest that Raul Castro or anyone around him has ever said to us, um, it wasn't us, but it could have been someone within us uh, who did this? If I under... I has Raul Castro ever said to any U.S. diplomat, I didn't do it, but it's possible that some of my guys did it without me knowing about it? I do not believe that communication has ever occurred. Is that your answer because it's, if it, you don't want to discuss something that is not in the proper setting, or is that just your, not, you just don't, have never heard that? that? That is my recollection that I've never heard that. But we can check the, the diplomatic uh, record and see if there was any exchange like that. I do not believe so. Okay. Um, and then the last one, and this was a question that was, uh, then you say, well, if it wasn't a rogue element within the Castro government, maybe it was a third country. Which third country would want to disrupt the U.S. presence there? And the logical conclusion is Russia and Vladimir Putin. Um, during the Cold War, do we have any documented cases of similar attacks against individuals anywhere in the world? I'm not aware, Senator, of anything similar to this. No, sir. Um, I believe in the late 50s and 60s, there were um, some evidence that microwave um, beams or radiation was directed against the U.S. Embassy in Moscow. Um, and I think it stopped in 1975, 1976. Uh, so there, there were some microwave attacks against the U.S. diplomatic presence in Moscow between some point in the 1950s through the mid-1970s. Uh, Senator, I'm not uh, knowledgeable enough to, to say whether there were attacks or not, but I know they were uh, investigating um, excess levels of microwave radiation that people may have been subjected to uh, back in that time frame. Mr. Palmieri, you were asked by, I believe, Senator Menendez if this had ever been raised with the uh, Russian government, and your answer was you couldn't answer that in that setting. Why, why would a communication to a foreign government, uh, uh, unless it contained you know, sensitive information, be classified? In essence, is it typical that any sort of communication with a, with a foreign government uh, because we're aware that, for example, that we've addressed this with the Cuban government, why would the fact or lack of uh, existence of a communication to the Russian government be something that we can't discuss in public? Uh, because of the nature of an interagency discussion to give the context uh, to uh, give you the full reply would be required, and I believe that would be more appropriate in, in the classified setting. And then I think that the, the last point that I think is pretty clear here is that it's important for us not to ascribe to Havana attributes of New York or Washington, D.C. Cuba, by all accounts, is by far the most heavily monitored and surveilled country in the Western Hemisphere. Does anyone disagree with that assessment? 
It is a police state. Does anyone disagree with the assessment that the city of Havana is the most monitored and surveilled city within the island of Cuba? I think that's, uh, and then let me ask you, um, U.S. government personnel, if you are an employee of the United States government and you are going to Havana, what level of monitoring or surveillance should you expect uh, when you are put positioned there? What do we tell our people when they go? Just outside of this context, do they have free reign to do anything they want or should they expect that they are constantly being watched, monitored, and closely kept tabs on? Mr. Brown, I think that's probably. <clears throat> Senator, I don't want to go into too much detail in, a, in an unclassified. Yeah, don't tell me the methods. I just want to know. If I, but, what, what but we certainly generate? we prepare our, our personnel for levels of, of, of surveillance and levels of harassment, and movements are certainly restricted, and, and movements uh, are, are anticipated that there will be um, a Cuban element uh, monitoring those movements. What other post in the world would you say is comparable to the level of surveillance history of harassment that a U.S. government employee would find in Havana? What other, what other places in the world have similar attributes? Senator, I, I think we're getting close to some classified areas, and I would hesitate to compare. I, I'm not asking you again for the type of harassment or even the type of surveillance, but I think it's, so it's classified to say that. There, the ranking of, of the level of counterintelligence is a, is a classified area. In I'm not asking for the ranking. I'm just saying who compares to, is it like it is in Montreal or Quebec? It is not. Okay. So then, my, the reason why I'm asking this is because if a U.S., I think it's safe to conclude that if I'm a U.S. government employee working in the embassy in Havana, the Cuban government knows where I live and is probably watching me every single day. The idea that somehow someone could conduct an attack so sophisticated that we don't even know what it is without the Cuban government at least knowing about it to one U.S. government employee, not to mention 24 over a 12-month period, is outside the realm of reasonable. It's, it's ridiculous. I could understand if somebody was mugged on a street corner, but these are sophisticated attacks, so sophisticated, as I said, that we can't even describe how it happened yet, to 24 U.S. government employees and their dependents in the most heavily monitored city, in the most heavily monitored country in the Western Hemisphere, and among the most heavily monitored in the world, where U.S. government personnel in particular are watched very carefully for all of their movements and activities, and the idea that someone could put together some sort of action against them, 24 of them, and the Cuban government not see it or know about it, it's just not possible. And so it leads you to conclude that the Cuban government either did this or they know who did it, and they can't say because whoever did it is either a third-party country that they cannot take on or elements within their own regime that they do not want to reveal for, for purposes of not um, making it appear to be unstable internally. And so I think these are all good conclusions from this hearing that conclude by saying my admonition at the beginning, I think it's really unfair for any suggestion that people working on behalf of the U.S. government were not injured in Havana. Imagine if you were one of these people who were out there working on our behalf, who have now suffered from these injuries, and reading in a newspaper somewhere that what happened to you didn't happen. Not only is it demoralizing, I think it's incredibly unfair to them. We can say that we don't know how it happened. We can even say we can't know for sure who did it. But two things we know for sure. It happened, people were hurt, and the Cuban government knows who did it. They just won't say.
for some reason. And, uh, and I think that's the biggest takeaway from this hearing, other than I remain concerned about the State Department's unwillingness to uh, stand up the ARB, the Accountability Review Board, in a timely fashion in accordance with the law, and I imagine that will be a topic of, of further discussion down the road. Um, I think that will conclude my questioning. I don't see no other members. Did you have anything else, Senator Udall? Well, I want to thank all of you for being here. I know this is a unique and, and perplexing um, subject matter, something we haven't really seen. Um, let me just get the, the – we're going to have a – you're probably going to um, – you may, Senator Minnett has already indicated, and I think some other members, Senator Flake had to leave. This is a topic he cares about a lot, um, but he had to be at the White House as long as, as well as Senator Menendez on an immigration meeting, so they had to leave. But both of them have indicated they're going to have extensive record, uh, questions for the record. And so we're going to keep the record open for 48 hours, and I'd ask that their questions be answered uh, in a timely fashion so that uh, we can close out this hearing and have all that information um, I also ask that my questions that remain un, unanswered, um, when was Secretary Kerry notified, when was President Obama notified, and um, uh, whether the Trump transition was briefed on this topic, uh, also be taken back for the record. I think these are important questions to have answers for. And uh, seeing no other members here or nothing further, the, the meeting is adjourned.